Hey everybody, thanks for tuning in today. If you're new here, welcome, welcome, welcome. I'm so glad you found me and I really hope you subscribe. If you aren't new here, I appreciate you coming back and taking another look. Thank you so much. Last week when I did the banana video, I had said in the intro that I wanted to do somebody else, but I decided to do Bonanno because I wanted to research the Seven Year War. Well, this is the guy that I really wanted to research last week. I admit I have a little bit of a bias because one of my best friends is a relative of this guy and I think that's absolutely awesome. So I had to jump on and do a video of him. I'm not going to name his name and if you're from my area you probably know who it is. Let's keep his name out of the comments please. Caligaro Minicor or as Americans know him, Carlos Marcello, was born on February 6th, 1910 in Tunis, French Tunisia, which is in North Africa. His parents were immigrants to the area because they were from Sicily and he just so happened to be born while they were in Tunis. He later came to be known as the little man or the godfather of Louisiana, but at this time he's just trying to get used to the new Americanized name that his parents had chosen for him, which was Carlos Marcello. Marcello's father Giuseppe had immigrated to America and a year later, in 1911, Marcello came over to America with his mother when he was eight months old. When they arrived in America, they ended up at a plantation house that was in absolutely terrible shape in Jefferson Parish, which is a suburb in New Orleans. His father started working on a sugar plantation and his supervisor just so happened to have the same last name as he had. So in order to avoid confusion, his father changed his last name from Minicor to Marcello. It's pretty dope how you could just, oop, I don't like my last name, I'm gonna change it. I wanna do that, I'm jealous. Carlos had six brothers and two sisters. Those poor poor girls having six brothers at least there was two of them it could have been worse it could have just been one but these brothers and sisters they were all born in America and they were American citizens obviously because they were born in America but Marcelo and his parents remained illegal immigrants and would remain that way once Marcelo was old enough he started selling fresh vegetables in the French market of New Orleans with his father a few years later his father bought a farm and it was called the Stanford plantation the farm the farm was just outside New Orleans, but the place was falling apart as well. It wasn't much of an upgrade, but it was something that he owned and figured he could build it up. He taught Carlos how to ride and work a horse and how to handle a wagon to carry the produce from the farm to the French market where they would sell it. And as soon as Carlos turned 18, that man bolted. He stayed until pretty much his 18th birthday and then he he ran out of the house which is understandable when you're the oldest of that many siblings you probably take on somewhat of a parental role and you kind of want to just be out on your own so i i understand why he did that as a kid unlike the mafia guys that we see in new york that were involved in the mafia from a really young age this kid was out there all on his own he was pulling petty crimes in the french quarter as a real young kid and then when he got a bit older he moved up to harder crimes. He was arrested at 19 years old for masterminding or being the boss of a group of teens who were pulling armed robberies in the small town outside of New Orleans. This particular event was a robbery of an A&P grocery store. When this happened, the newspapers compared him to Fagin from the Charles Dickens novel, Oliver Twist. Now, I'm not even gonna sit here and pretend that I'm smart enough or well-read enough to know who the hell this is, but I did do a quick Google search. And Google told me that Fagan was someone who was a receiver of stolen goods. He's said by Monks, another character in the book, to have already made criminals out of scores of children. Funny enough, this Fagan talks about how kids do not peach, which in this context that means snitch, on him or on the other children, which obviously resonates for this will-be mafioso. In the book's case, it means that he doesn't really care about the welfare of the children who were in the gang. In Marcello's case, it was ironic because he had later been caught after a robbery of a bank where they had stolen $7,000 and one of the boys in the group turned himself in and named the other two individuals involved and they named his name. Fagan was hung at the end of the book for murder, so there's that. It's not exactly somebody that you want to be associated with. Marcello didn't go to jail 
for those armed robberies. Even though he had been found guilty, the conviction was later overturned, so he never saw jail time for that. Shortly after the conviction was overturned, he was arrested again, and this is where he got ratted out. This time he was convicted of assault and robbery. This one stuck, and he was sentenced to nine years for which he served five. The story of why he only served five years is pretty hilarious. In jail, Marcelo started working in a license plate factory. He worked his way up and became the warden's yard boy. After he made this promotion, he discovered that the warden was having an affair with a female cook in the prison. He blackmailed the warden, and that's pretty much how he got out of jail. How did Marcelo find out that the warden was having an affair with this cook, you may ask? Oh, because he was having an affair with her too. This fact is disputed though. I've seen some places say that this is what happened, and then I've seen other places say it was the governor who randomly, out of the blue, granted him a full pardon. So all of that went down in 1929. He did five years, so when he got out of jail, it was 1934. In 1936, Marcelo married Jacqueline Todaro. Jacqueline was the niece of Frank Todaro, who was a high-ranking mafia member in the New Orleans Mafia, and he would later become the underboss of the family. He only stayed that way for four months, but it was only because he passed away that he left the position. Tadaro was the underboss to Sam Silver Dollar Sam Carolla, and Carolla was the actual head of the New Orleans crime family. As it happens, whenever somebody marries into Mafia royalty, Marcelo's star began to rise, and he quickly advanced in the New Orleans Mafia. He was very quickly a lieutenant. When I said that there's sources that say that the governor out of nowhere granted Marcelo a full pardon, it's because opportunity came knocking. Apparently, Frank Costello had reached out to his contacts in the New Orleans family and asked them for the name of a reliable, loyal person who could handle the operations on the ground in New Orleans. This phone call went down while Marcelo was still in jail, so at least Marcelo can say that his name was given based on his own merits, not because he married an important girl. Either way, they gave Marcelo's name. According to this story, they gave his name and the fact that he was in jail in year five of a nine-year prison sentence was no biggie for Costello, and Costello just made a phone call and had him released. We've seen that happen before when Lucky Luciano wanted to get Anastasia in his family. He went and got a lawyer and got Anastasia off death row. And Frank Costello is the underboss or consigliere for Lucky Luciano, so it makes sense that they would operate the same way. Frank Costello was Lucky Luciano's consigliere, and he was running a slot machine racket in New York. He put a shit ton of illegal slot machines across the state of New York. The mayor at the time, Fiorello LaGuardia, yes, that's where the name of the airport comes from, intervened and confiscated all of the slot machines. Just to rub a little salt in the wound, he had the slot machines dumped in the East River. Obviously, this hurt Costello's earning abilities, so Costello got with the governor of New Orleans, Huey Long, and made an arrangement with Long to give him 10% of the gambling revenue if he could move his slot machines to New Orleans. Now, this in no way was a legal agreement, but it could definitely be inferred that if they cut him in on the profits, the government wouldn't bother him about the slot machines that they they placed in New Orleans. In early 1935, Frank Costello came to New Orleans with Phil Castile to create a fake company named Bayou Novelty Co. And it was a front to start making moves to create what would eventually become a statewide gambling ring. Costello first thought to go to New Orleans because he married Loretta Giegerman, and she was from Louisiana. In 1937, Costello's brother-in-law, Dudley Giegerman, took over operations of Bayou Novelty. At the time, the company was profiting about $800,000 a year. Things soon went south for the company, though, when Costello, two of his brothers-in-law, Jake Altman, Castile, and James Bracado were charged with evading $2.6 million worth of income tax on this company. That would amount to about $51 million in 2021, which is obviously a crazy amount. Marcello was not named in this indictment. The reason that Marcello wasn't named in the indictment was because, unbeknownst to the government, 
Marcello had been working with Costello to install hundreds of these machines into bars and other entertainment establishments in and around the quarter through a jukebox and pinball distribution company that Carlos's brother Joe owned. In 1938, Marcello was charged with selling more than 23 pounds of Mary Hoo-ha. He caught the charge because he sold weed to an undercover agent. Funny enough, everywhere that you read about this charge, they mention a lengthy prison sentence that he was given. He was given a year and a day. I don't know why they make it seem like he was sentenced to such a long time but didn't serve that amount of time. He was only given a year and a day. He was out within nine months. It was no biggie. Now, here's a fun fact that I didn't know. Marijuana was made illegal in America in 1937. So they made this plant illegal. Then an undercover sets him up to sell 23 pounds of it and then he goes to jail. I swear, the government is so dirty. He was sent to a federal prison in Atlanta, Georgia. In this prison, Marcello became a more knowledgeable and sophisticated criminal. Going to jail didn't slow him down or make him fearful of committing crimes, no. It made him more refined, it made him hungrier for profit, and a lot more skilled at averting the police. And that's something we see pretty often, is people go to jail for petty little crimes and they come out hardened criminals. Jail in America is not made for rehabilitation. It's made for a punishment. And that's why the rate of recidivism is so insane because you can go to jail for selling a dime bag of marijuana and then come out and now you've upgraded to where you're pulling robberies. He was quickly back out on the streets. Marcello was running a bar in Gretna. The bar was called Brown Bomber, which of course had its own slot machines, and he continued placing the slot machines across the entire state. At this time, the money is pouring in. The profits were spread out to everyone who had a stake. Costello and Castile, who are currently fighting their tax evasion charges with the other company, got their cut. Carlos and his brothers and the bar owners, the police, the politicians, everybody walks away with a significant piece of the pie, and the pie was plenty big enough for everyone to walk away rich. It was later spun that any company who had pinball machines or jukeboxes from Marcello's company with his brother felt that their lives were threatened if they didn't allow a slot machine into their establishment. Obviously, that's ridiculous. The amount of money that these slot machines brought into every establishment that they went into was out of control, both from the profits from the actual slot machines, as well as the increased foot traffic of people that otherwise never would have walked through those doors. The company owners were lining up down the block begging for these machines, but once you get caught, obviously, oh my god, I was gonna die if I didn't let it come into my bar. Costello and Castile got a taste for New Orleans, and they really liked how it tasted. They go all in on this town that they can get away with virtually anything outside of federal watch, like taxes. As long as you follow federal law, you can get away with pretty much anything in New Orleans. And they decide to open up some clubs there. They have Meyer Lansky as a shadow investor, Obviously, Costello has Lansky as a broski because he's Lucky Luciano's consigliere and Lansky is Luciano's boyhood man crush. They had, you know, a thing. So that's where Meyer Lansky came into the picture. Huey Long was assassinated September 10th, 1935. After he was killed, the police started to crack down on illegal gambling and the slot machines that were illegally placed all over New Orleans. Costello, Castile, and Marcello found a way around this, of course. They rigged the slot machines to pay out either a mint candy or a slug coin instead of cash or regular coins. The people who won the slug coins could go and redeem the slug coin for actual money, much like chips and poker from the establishment that they were playing in. But without actual money coming out, the slot machines were able to stay under the radar and they were able to exploit holes in the law that kept them from being seized. They made a few companies from this and the Louisiana Mint Company starts dealing the slot machines that pay out the mints, and the Pelican Novelty Company starts dealing out the ones with slug coins. Costello and Marcello agreed that Jefferson Music Company, another company that they were operating under, would sell 250 machines in New Orleans, and Marcello would keep two-thirds of the profit. Costello, Castile, and Lansky, they like Marcello a lot. They respect him, business is going well with him, so they bring him in as a partner on the beverage Club, 
which is an illegal casino that they set up in Jefferson Parish. In December 1946, Meyer Lansky sets up the Havana Conference for Lucky Luciano. The Havana Conference was a meeting with all of America's underworld leaders, and it was to discuss policy, rules, and all business interests. All of the crime families in the U.S. were invited, and I think all of them went. The conference had to go down in Havana, Cuba, because Luciano had been deported to Italy after helping America win World War II, which significantly decreased his sentence of 25 years to life that he had been given for running prostitution rings all across New York. Santo Traficante had also moved to Havana in 1946 to oversee the casino business interests of both the Tampa family and La Cosa Nostra in general. When all of these guys were questioned about why they were congregating in Havana, they said that they were going to see Frank Sinatra, which we all know was a very big part in the mafia, perform a concert. Marcello was making routine trips from New Orleans to New York and back to pick up more and more illegal slot machines. He and Sam Carolla, the boss of the New Orleans family, they branch out of just New Orleans, and they start to place these slot machines all up and down the entire Gulf Coast, all throughout the 30s and 40s. Costello, Castile, Lansky, Carolla, and Marcello, they all opened multiple big-time casinos in New Orleans. They all also became really, really rich from the profits of this gold rush that was gambling. Marcello was also skimming money from a bunch of Las Vegas casinos, and all he had to do in return for that skim was to provide muscle in Florida real estate deals that were going down. In early 1947, Sam Carolla was deported back to Italy. This left Marcello, who was already extremely wealthy and running a huge chunk of the jobs of the family, as boss of the New Orleans family. The commission approved his placement as boss, and he remained boss for the next 30 years. He was called to testify at the Kofer Committee trials in 1951, and just like Joe Gallo and I think every other Mafia member that was called, he pled the fifth 152 times. I'm pretty sure every Mafia guy that testified at the Kofer Committee immediately became a household name. Marcello was well known to the public from this point on, even though he claimed to just be a tomato salesman. He said that he made his fortune by doing well in land investments. During this trial, Marcello was called one of the worst criminals in the country. The New Orleans family hangout was at Mosca's, an Italian restaurant in Avondale, which which is a suburb in New Orleans. Marcello owned the building that the restaurant was in, and to this day, the Marcello family still owns the building and the Mosca family still runs the restaurant in it, which is pretty cool. I love history like that. Marcello established a rule that nobody from any of the other families, any of the other families, was allowed to even so much as visit New Orleans without first getting permission from him. The family had a long-standing tradition of remaining independent from the New York families, and he wanted to keep it that way. It's definitely not like he didn't like guys from the New York family. I mean, Frank Costello is the one that's probably most responsible for his rise to the top, but he just didn't want any New York guys coming in and trying to take over, especially with the amount of profits that was coming out of the New Orleans family. Throughout the 50s, Mar Marcello deploys his fleet of shrimp boats to run drugs from Cuba all the way up and down the Gulf Coast. Fun fact, two of my uncles were arrested in one of these deals. They got caught on a boat that was coming from Cuba with 37 tons of cocaine and marijuana on board. One of my uncles told me that he was very involved with the Florida families despite being from New York. He said Gotti was an asshole and the New York guys weren't loyal and that he was way better off going into Florida and being a part of of that family. They did do a lot of years in jail for that boat situation, though. Both of them passed away, so I don't really feel too bad mentioning their involvement in it. Under Marcello's leadership, the local mafia made over $1.1 billion a year from gambling, prostitution, burglaries, and various legitimate businesses as well. The FBI reported that Marcello was not involved in organized crime and that he was too smart to allow himself to be wiretapped. During this time, Marcello's empire is growing exponentially. He has an establishment, the Balinese Room in Galveston, where people travel from across the country to see Hollywood entertainers that perform there. It has a huge ballroom, and a night out there includes a great show 
show, fine dining, dancing, gambling, just exactly what you would expect to see in a 1950s upscale place. People would be doing the jitterbug, the swing, the rock and roll, the boogie woogie, or the bop, and just dance their little butts off and had the night of their lives. The New Orleans family started to take over the entire area of Texas because Dallas and Houston doesn't have their own families. Drugs were smuggled over the Mexican border and slot machines were placed all across Texas. And he also had 800 bookmakers across Texas bringing in a gross revenue of around $700 million a year. Marcelo's underboss, Joe Savillo, is given a lot of responsibility. Savillo was the one that was sent to the Appalachian conference for Marcelo, which is why Marcelo wasn't arrested at the Appalachian Conference. He didn't go. He's also appointed to oversee all of Marcelo's operations in Dallas. The family's interests in Dallas make him a pretty important part of the French Connection, which is a heroin network where La Cosa Nostra traded heroin from France to the United States. Marcelo is receiving and distributing narcotics that were shipped in on boats from Cuba and over the border in Mexico, and transporting them within the states on Teamsters trucks. Marcelo and Savillo bring in an associate of Savillo's, Jack Ruby. Remember this name? Jack Ruby moves to Dallas to become a part of the narcotics trafficking, but he also gets heavily involved in the call girl prostitution ring. He has a club in Dallas called the Carousel Club, and strippers and dancers are interchanged between this club and Marcelo's club pretty regularly, just to make sure that there's always fresh faces when people come pretty regularly. Marcelo starts investing in clubs, restaurants, bars, and also a shit ton of land in Dallas as well. He starts getting involved in politics, and he heavily puts his support behind Lyndon B. Johnson in the senatorial campaign. And later on, he also puts his support behind the same person in his race against JFK in the presidential race. He throws a lot of financial backing into the campaign. Johnson works in the Senate and kills any anti-racketeering legislation that would hurt Marcello's business, and Marcello gives him over $50,000 a year, which would amount to about $500,000 a year today. The FBI does not attempt to place any wires or try to catch Marcello or Traficante doing any kind of illegal activities. They even go so far as to publicly state that he's not involved in organized crime, that he's just a tomato salesman. The only clues as to why that may be was that there was rumors within the mafia circles that J. Edgar Hoover, who was the president at the time, was caught having gay sex in New Orleans, and Marcello took pictures and hung them over his head to ensure the safety of him and Traficante against the government. In 1959, he was called to testify before the McClellan Committee. Robert F. Kennedy was in charge of the McClellan trials, and this is where Marcello's beef with the Kennedys begins. He was straight dogging Kennedy. There are legit pictures of this man sitting in the courtroom with a pair of sunglasses on and clearly nodding off. He just made it very clear he did not give a fuck. Robert Kennedy came in hot for all mafia guys. It was legit this man's sole purpose in life to take down the entire mafia. Marcello really pissed off Kennedy when he pled the fifth to any questions at all regarding any parts of his life, his background, his activities, or his associates. On April 4th, 1961, Marcello went to the immigration office in New Orleans, and he did that quarterly since he had been an undocumented immigrant. The government had been requiring him to check in quarterly because it became known what his immigration status was during the covert committee. At the immigration office, Robert Kennedy grabbed him and immediately deported him to Guatemala. Marcelo wasn't a citizen of Guatemala, but years beforehand, he had been caught with fraudulent passports from Guatemala that he had obtained in order to ensure that he wouldn't be sent back to Italy or Tunisia. If he was ever deported, he would go to Guatemala. He had some pretty significant interests in the shrimping industry in Guatemala, so he had the paperwork drawn up and worked out, and he was sent there based on the fraudulent documentation that he had created for himself. Marcelo's immigration lawyer, Jack Wasserman, filed a suit immediately against Robert Kennedy for the kidnapping of Marcelo. When he got to Guatemala, the media was already there at the military base when he was flown 
flown in. There was rumors that he was parachuted into a jungle. That's just sensationalism. That's not what happened. The media was also at the nearby hotel, hoping that he would stay there for the night. But instead, he went out with the colonel's secretary and got some food at Casablanca. The secretary, Miss Jinx, she was supposed to make arrangements for where Marcelo would stay that night. But since it was so late by the time that they got done at Casablanca and she still hadn't made any arrangements, she had him stay at her apartment. He was convinced that she was setting him up to be killed. She let him sleep in the bed with her. And he thought along the lines of who would blame a man for coming in and killing a dude who's in bed with his wife. And he knew how much the government wanted to get rid of him, so he did not sleep at all that night. He was scared of some Jeffrey Epstein didn't kill himself craziness, so he just stayed up. But everything ended up being just fine. There was no attempts, there was nothing crazy, and it turned out that he could have just slept through the night. The next day, he was able to call his family and let them know that he was okay. When he called his family, they let him know that his brother Sammy would be coming to Guatemala with money, clothes, supplies, everything that he needed that he wasn't allowed to get from his house because he had been illegally deported. Wasserman filed suit against Robert Kennedy and Joseph May Swing, the immigration commissioner, for contempt of court. He claimed in his suit that, by law, Marcelo should have been given 72 hours notice before being deported, and that made the deportation illegal and demanded that he be allowed back into Louisiana. Practically his entire family went to Guatemala to be with him. Marcelo's brother Sammy and Vincent, wife Jackie, Vincent's wife Sadie, and their son Little Joe, and daughter Florence, and uncle Felice Galino, they all came to Guatemala to be with him since he was forced to stay there, which is pretty cool. You just leave your country to come and stay with someone because they're stuck in another country. I like to hear about families that are tight like that. Now, here's the kicker of the entire situation. In Louisiana, the IRS puts a tax lien on Marcelo because he had left the country without permission from the IRS while still owing taxes. Without their permission. They literally kidnapped this man and sent him away and then fined him for doing it. The tax liens that they put in place were a little over $835,000 which is worth almost $8 million in today's money. Even though Kennedy was more than likely behind this because he hated him so much for the McClellan Committee, Marcello said in an interview that he didn't blame Kennedy and that Joe Swing was the one behind his hasty and illegal deportation. A three-judge panel was appointed to review Marcello's case in the United States since his lawyer continued to argue that he was not a Guatemalan citizen and he should have never been deported in the first place. He was arrested in Guatemala after his papers proving his citizenship were verified to be fraudulent, and that's pretty much because Robert Kennedy heard that he wasn't doing bad in Guatemala, that there, his family had come, he set up shop there and started doing business there. Robert Kennedy got pissed, so they pressured the Guatemalan government to try him for fraudulent papers. A judge ordered that Marcelo be released without bond because there was insufficient evidence to charge him. He was informed, though, that any new evidence that came to light would allow him to be rearrested and pretty much sent him on his way. Marcelo found out that back in America, he had been given additional tax liens for $130,000. That night, the president of Guatemala ordered the chief of special investigations, Ranolfo Gonzalez Avale, be fired and arrested for releasing Marcelo. When Avale's boss called him into the office to fire him and to arrest him, he pulled out a gun and a hand grenade and threatened his boss so that he could get out of that office. He barricaded himself inside his own office and he brought a few cops that were loyal to him into the office with him. They did eventually get him out of his office and he didn't die and he actually even kept his position. I can't even find clarification as to how he pulled this off, but he did. He ended up being assassinated in January 1962 and that led to some crazy situations and a lot of really violent interactions between the police and citizens because when he was killed, the citizens started to protest and they were really upset that he had been killed. The next night, the president made an official public statement saying that he planned to have Marcelo rearrested and deported. They dragged their feet doing this though because they couldn't find anywhere that would accept him. At the time that he was born, Tunisia was under French control but had since changed powers and was no longer under French control. So Tunisia said that they wouldn't take him because they were under French control when he was born and pretty much he was the French's problem. 
And the French said that they wouldn't take him because they no longer controlled Tunisia. So he was Tunisia's problem. Nobody wanted to take this man. What Guatemala ended up doing was ordering Marcelo and his family be out of the country within 24 hours. They kind of just shrugged their shoulders and said, this seems like a you problem, but get out of our country. The next day, he went to the airport with his family. He tried to charter a plane, but the airline refused him service because the U.S. authorities ordered that no airline that operated within the United States was allowed to sell him a ticket. Now, this president that had the cop arrested for following the orders of a judge now gets pissy because no one will let Marcelo buy a ticket to get out of the country. So this man literally suspended all air traffic in and out of Guatemala. And it stayed suspended for like six hours, which is wild. Imagine, imagine all air traffic being suspended in the United States for six hours hours, we would still feel the impact of that a year from now. When no one would sell him a ticket, the president had him driven out of Guatemala and into El Salvador, where they pretty much drove about 20 miles and kicked his ass out of the door. They they drove right past the border and dropped him off at an army base and pretty much turned around and booked it back into Guatemala. El Salvador grabbed him, interrogated him for six days, and then loaded him and his American lawyer, Mike Maroon, onto a bus that was headed to Honduras. This bus kicked them out at the top of the mountain, and it was only a few miles inside the Honduras border, and pretty much just kicked him out in the middle of a South American jungle. Marcelo and his lawyer walked for over eight hours and over 17 miles with absolutely no idea where they were heading. They just knew that they couldn't stay in the middle of the jungle where they had been left by the bus and there was no civilization anywhere to be found. Marcelo was 51 years old at the time and he couldn't breathe with the elevation and he passed out three times on that walk. The whole ordeal changed his mind about not blaming Robert Kennedy, and he instructed his lawyer to tell his brothers what Kennedy had done to them, and that they were to do what they had to do if he didn't make it. They finally made it to a mountain village, and there they were able to rest and recuperate, and they hired two boys to guide them to the nearest airport. As they followed the two boys, it became pretty obvious that they knew that these two were Americans and that they had money on them, and they were more than likely about to get killed by these two boys from a remote mountain range in Honduras who were wielding machetes. They were going through a part of the jungle that required the boys to use their machetes to keep walking, and Marcelo and Mike ran down a different path to escape the boys. They fell down a cove, and Marcelo ended up breaking two ribs. When they finally stumbled upon a small airport, Marcelo decided that Mike should return alone to the States, and he should let his family know that he was okay. He still couldn't buy a ticket to go anywhere, but that didn't apply to Mike. Soon enough, Marcelo was back in the United States, which we all know that was going to happen. It's some long-held secret how he got back into the United States, and it's a secret that Lamar White Jr. promises to reveal with his book about Carlos Marcello, but we have no idea when the book is going to come out. He's been working on it for a few years, but he promises that he officially knows how Marcello got back into the United States, and he's going to put it in the book. They say that he was able to get in touch with Felice Galino, who owns a fleet of shrimp boats, and he sent one of the boats to Guatemala to pick up Marcelo and transport him back to the U.S., and they transported him back in through the Louisiana bayous. So no matter how he got there, now he's back in America, and he has to deal with those little pesky $300,000 in tax liens, plus the fact that he's not allowed to be in America. He's really famous, and the media swarms him like flies, so it's not like he could just go unnoticed. In November of 1963, Marcelo was tried and acquitted for having the fraudulent Guatemalan documentation and re-entering the country illegally. The following year, he was tried with bribing a juror and killing a government witness in that trial. There was no proof, though, so he was acquitted of those charges as well, but we know how he got out on the first trial. He was arrested in New York in 1966 for hanging out with his friends, you know, the consorting with known criminals charge that they throw around, and again, the charges were dropped. Didn't amount to anything. A few days later, he was arrested in New Orleans for assaulting an FBI agent. 
His first trial resulted in a hung jury, probably because he bribed at least one of the jurors, and the second trial led to him being found guilty. He was sentenced to two years, and he only served six months. In 1970, Life magazine put out a story claiming that Carlos Marcello, not the government, actually ran the state of Louisiana. It was a really scathing review of the Louisiana government, and it pretty much claimed that Marcello had his tentacles everywhere in the state government, and poor John McKeithen, the governor of Louisiana at the time had no idea. The article claimed that Marcello had purchased Churchill Farms, 6,000 acres of land that he owned in Jefferson County for a million dollars, and now thanks to a pumping station that the government put in place, which only benefited Marcello, nobody else, was valued at $60 million. In reality, Marcello didn't even pay for that property. He took it from someone who owed him about $60,000 in gambling debt. The entire property was uninhabitable swamp, but he had sold a piece to the government so that the government could build a gas station on it. The land was also worth absolutely nowhere near $60 million. In reality, he mostly used it for the ability to dump bodies that he had dissolved in lye so that the gators in the swamps would eat anything that was left. Locals called this gator food Marcelo Gumbo. He once attempted to get the government to build the Superdome Stadium for sporting events on the property, but he was unsuccessful, so it didn't end up being built there. The Life magazine article led to Marcelo being called to testify in Baton Rouge in front of the newly formed Louisiana Legislative Mafia Probe Committee. He only pled the fifth a few times during the testimony, and when he did, really nobody minded it because he was giving a lot of information. He spent three hours in front of the committee while a lawyer went through a list of every member of the state government, and Marcello had to explain if and how he knew each one of those members. He walked away from the trial unscathed, and the government released its findings that the Life magazine article simply wasn't true. Two people named in that article sued David Chandler, who wrote the article, for slander, and they won. When the committee agreed that the article was not true, they went after Chandler for writing a reckless and defamatory article. During the investigation, Chandler launched a vanity campaign for governor. He only got about 300 votes, and it was just obnoxious. In 1981, Marcello was arrested with some pretty important people, and he was charged with all the mafia trappings conspiracy, racketeering, mail and wire fraud, the works, everything. This charge was about bribing government officials for multi-million dollar insurance contracts, and the judge allowed illegally taped recordings to be admitted into evidence because it proved corruption within the government at the highest levels. He was found guilty with the Commissioner of Administration to the government, but everybody else got off. The thing that Carlos Marcello is most well known for is his involvement with JFK's assassination. Conspiracy theorists run wild with the claim that Marcello had Kennedy assassinated, and honestly, I kind of believe them. Obviously, this is hard for me to believe because I feel like the government quite possibly could put out facts that make people think it was Marcello instead of an inside job, which it's very possible that was the case as well. But let's take a look at the facts and the claims here. Marcello had plenty of reason to go after the Kennedys. JFK had signed multiple legislations that combated organized crime, and that was a huge change from the life that he had been living, where the government as a whole kind of had a blindfold over their eyes where Marcello was concerned. After Robert Kennedy couldn't get Marcello to stay deported and couldn't get him to testify at the McClellan Committee, he furiously vowed to have Marcello thrown under the jail. Everybody apparently involved, Lee Harvey Oswald, Jack Ruby, I told you to remember that name, here it is, Jimmy Hoffa, Everybody was murdered in 1975 and 1976 during congressional committees that were looking into the botched Bay of Pigs and JFK's murder. Lee Harvey Oswald, the person that supposedly assassinated JFK, told Marcello Uncle Carlos. His uncle, Charlie Dutz, ran one of Marcello's betting services. Frank Regano, a lawyer that kind of fell upon the title of mob lawyer, claims in his autobiography that he relayed a message to both Marcello and his longtime best friend Santo Traficante, the boss of the Florida family, from Jimmy Hoffa urging them to kill Kennedy. 
He said he thought that Hoffa was only venting and delivered the message as a joke, but Marcelo and Traficante seemed to take it pretty seriously when he told them. He also claimed that four days before Traficante died, he described how he and Marcelo organized the murder. And that's how murders are always, always confirmed. It's always a deathbed confession. So these murders, these disappearances, they all go missing until the person that did it is about to die and then they start talking. Rogano says that a few days after the assassination, Hoffa told Regano, I told you I could do it. I'll never forget what Carlos and Santos did for me. In the same vein, Marcelo told Regano, when you see Jimmy, tell him he owes me, and he owes me big. Lamar Waldron, an author, claimed that Marcelo confessed to masterminding the assassination to his prison cellmate at Texarkana during his last six and a half year sentence. His roommate was wired and was an FBI informant, and he also had said it a few times in a fit of rage in the yard to two inmates. And if this did happen, I imagine it went somewhere along the lines of, do you know who you're fucking with? I killed Kennedy. Waldron claims that Marcelo had two hitmen carry out the assassination and then set up Lee Harvey Oswald as the the full guy. He also says that Marcelo had everybody who had absolutely anything to do with the murder killed, including Johnny Roselli and Sam Giancana, two fellow mafia members. Charles Brandt, a criminal underworld investigator, stated that while Marcelo was having blood pressure problems in Texarkana, he was deliriously talking to nurses as if they were members of his mafia family. And that's another thing we see pretty often is that whenever people are tripping out, they're talking to people as if they're people within the family and a lot of stuff gets spilled. He says that multiple times, Marcelo talked about a meeting that he had with Provenzano, a Genovese capo, and that they would soon be celebrating because they were going to get that smiling motherfucker Kennedy in Dallas. Which I don't know about that because Kennedy had almost been assassinated in Florida four days before he was actually assassinated in Dallas. So I don't know if they even planned to kill him in Dallas. I think that the plan was to kill him in Florida, but a credible threat came in and Kennedy just skipped the Florida trip overall. And the next trip that he went on was Dallas and that's where he was killed. In 1993, Illinois cop killer James Files confessed to Kennedy's murder. He said that he was an army paratrooper in Laos, a trainer of Cuban exiles for the Bay of Pigs invasion, and personal driver for Chicago mobster Charles Nicoletti. And Files said that he fired from the grassy knoll while Nicoletti shot from the Dow Tex building. In 1994, the New York Post ran a story on Files titled, Call This JFK Tale, Null and Void. Ed Becker, a Las Vegas entrepreneur says that Marcelo told him that he was going to take care of Robert Kennedy. He said Marcelo would recruit some nut to kill JFK so it could be traced back to him. Several people back up that claim and say that they were there when that was said. He said that the dog, alluding to JFK, will keep biting you if you only cut off its tail, who I'm guessing alluded to Robert Kennedy, but that the dog would stop biting if its head was cut off. Pretty much saying, instead of killing Robert Kennedy, who was actually the one that messed with us, let's kill, we're gonna kill JFK because he's the head of the dog. Becker did report this to the FBI two days before the assassination, but since they had no wiretapped recordings or proof of any threats, they really couldn't do much of anything about it. Marcelo had a sign in his office that quoted, three can keep a secret if two are dead. Which as soon as I heard that, I thought of the Pretty Little Liars theme track, two can keep a secret if one of them are dead. It's not the same, but it's the same concept. Two people can't keep a secret. The FBI had confirmed that they have 1,350 reels of tape of Marcello. They also confirmed that some of the reels include him discussing the assassination. They would absolutely, under no circumstances, turn over the tapes. John Davis, the biographer of Regano's book, sued the FBI to access 161 of the tapes, which Davis claims will implicate Marcello in the assassination. This was after the 1992 act that released a lot, but not all, of the information surrounding JFK's murder. Right before the assassination, Jack Ruby came to New Orleans to get help with the problem that he was having. Jack Ruby would go on to kill Lee Harvey Oswald, who also just so happens to have visited New Orleans that same summer as he was being transported to a county jail. Jack Ruby was a nightclub owner who ran errands for Al Capone as a kid. He visited Traficante when he was in jail in Cuba, and he had really strong ties with all the members involved in this scheme. It just so happens that Jack Ruby is also a close associate of Joseph Villo, Marcelo's 
Texas underboss. Two days before the assassination, a prostitute and heroin addict named Rose Sheremy told the Louisiana State Policeman that she had been en route to Dallas with two men who were Italians or resembling Italians and were planning to kill Kennedy. After the assassination actually happened, she told Dr. Victor Weiss at East Louisiana State Hospital that the word in the underworld had been that Kennedy was going to take a mob bullet. She also said that Oswald and Ruby had been shacking up for years. They were bedmates. Now, no one believed her because she was a drug addict and she was a prostitute. Now, I personally have a case where there's prostitutes that came forward and made testimony, and the police chose not to believe them because of their line of work, and the person is still running around after murdering someone. So it really does happen. If you are a drug addict, if you are in an unsavory career, the police will straight up ignore you. And they'll even give up their big cases because they're just kind of like, we can't take the word of a prostitute. We don't care. I don't know if I would go as so far as to say that they were bedmates. I know nothing about that. But she did come to them. There's, there's two people right there that came within days of the assassination and told the FBI that this was going to happen, and it just kind of got brushed off their shoulder. We know that Marcello told his lawyer while they were lost in the jungle to tell his brothers to kill Robert Kennedy if he didn't make it out. Killing JFK was kind of the same thing, though, since JFK being appointed as president is what got Robert Kennedy his position as the U.S. Attorney General in the first place. Robert Kennedy was haunted with guilt for the rest of his life about JFK's murder. Only an hour after his brother was killed, Robert Kennedy confided in Edwin Guthman, an aide in his house who later wrote a book, We Band of Brothers, about his experiences. Robert told Guthman, I thought that they would get one of us. I, I thought it would be me. After Kennedy's assassination, the Warren Commission was put together to investigate his death. Their official findings were that a pathetic, attention-seeking gunman had been responsible for the murder alone. Robert Kennedy publicly supported these findings, but privately he was dismissive of the commission. He saw it as public relations, and it was a tool to placate the rattled masses. In the hours following JFK's death, Robert had Joe McCone, the director of the CIA, flown to his estate. He flat out asked him if the CIA had killed his brother. Arthur Schlesinger, another aide at Kennedy's estate, recalls his conversation with Robert about this meeting. He said that he asked McCone if the CIA had killed my brother, and I asked him in a way that he couldn't lie to me, and they hadn't. He seemed to believe that as truth. As soon as John Kennedy was assassinated, Robert had three suspects. None of them were a lone gunman looking to make a name for himself in the history books. He suspected the CIA, the Mafia, and Cuba. His conversation with McCone seemed to rule out the CIA for Robert, so he only had two options left, the Mafia or Cuba. McCone later came to believe that there were two shooters involved in JFK's murder, not just Lee Harvey Oswald. He obviously suspected the Mafia because he was going so hard at them with these committees, but he believed it may have been Cuba because JFK's murder was pretty soon after the Bay of Pigs, which was an attempted invasion of Cuba to kill Fidel Castro, and it was orchestrated by the CIA. It did not go well. It was completely botched, and JFK had the agency's founding director, Alan Dules, replaced with McCone, who was an outsider, because of this botched sting operation. Robert had been investigating the CIA and overseeing the administration's interdepartmental Cuba team. He often began his days with meetings at the CIA headquarters in Langley, so it wasn't too much of a stretch to believe that the CIA really could have and probably did assassinate JFK. With the CIA ruled out in Robert's head, he reached out to Julius Drazen, a Chicago lawyer for the National Labor Relations Board, who Robert trusted to have a lot of mafia sources. Drazen was never able to confirm or deny if the mafia had a hand in his brother's murder. Jimmy Hoffa had been heard by a Teamsters union associate who turned into a rat, saying something to the effect of, I've got to do something about that son of a bitch Bobby Kennedy. He's got to go. Kennedy continued searching for evidence that Hoffa, Marcello, or any other mafioso was responsible for John's death. He reached out to every contact that he had, but he was never able to produce anything, so nobody 
somebody ever went to jail for it. An FBI wiretap in the prison, corroborated by a rat within the prison, picked up Marcelo confessing to having JFK killed. When Traficante made his deathbed confession to the murder, it was because he felt guilty that they had killed JFK instead of Robert. This information was all released under the JFK Records Act of 1992. Sam Giancana, the mob boss from Chicago, was, was banging this girl named Judith Exner, and she was also banging JFK, and pretty much Giancana had sent her to JFK, and JFK would send letters through her to the mafia if they had to exchange any kind of information for any reason. I think I may do an episode of Sam Giancana, because this man was wild. Anyway, he was killed when someone came into his house and put seven bullets into him. It just so happens that he was killed on the day that Johnny Roselli's remains were found in an oil drum floating in a bay in Miami. Everybody thought that Traficante had ordered Roselli's murder, so it sounds like he probably ordered Sam to be killed as well. Johnny Roselli and Sam Giancana were testifying at committees regarding their involvement with the Bay of Pigs. The Boston Globe said it best. As Bobby's post-assassination suspicions appeared to bounce between Cuba to the mafia to the CIA, he surely had to confront the reality that the lines separating all three had become increasingly blurry. Files that were recently released show Marcello, Traficante, Giancana, and Roselli all had varying levels of involvement in the attempted invasion. The Boston Globe offers this explanation as to why John, not Bobby Kennedy, was assassinated. It's all a matter of speculation, but there could have been a very practical explanation for this more circuitous path. If Bobby had been assassinated, historians point out, his brother could have been expected to marshal every ounce of his prestigious federal power to exact revenge on the murderers and their benefactors. And because the victim would not just be the country's crusading attorney general, but also the president's brother, the public would have surely given Jack Kennedy a blank check of support for crackdown on whatever dark forces he determined were responsible for his death. That's the biggest question mark for me in the Marcelo killed JFK claim. The mafia is not dumb. They have a long-standing rule against killing any cops, prosecutors, judges, any of them. Look at Lucky Luciano. He ended up getting a life sentence after Thomas Dewey came for him. Anastasia had previously requested permission from the commission to kill Dewey so that Luciano and anybody that Dewey decided to go for next wouldn't go to jail. He was denied, and Luciano is much higher up than Marcello or Hoffa or Traficante, so why would the mafia condone this murder? and if they didn't condone it, why was Marcelo not punished after it happened? The only thing that I can think of is if Marcelo was involved or planned it outright, it was behind the commission's back. I mean, he told the nurses that he had a meeting with the Genovese family capo about it, but he could have been hiding it because the commission would have immediately squashed the idea if they had heard about it. Five years after John Kennedy's assassination, Robert Kennedy was assassinated after being elected as the Democratic Convention's pick for the president presidential election. Marcelo's health started to rapidly decline, and in early 1989, he had a series of strokes. In July of that same year, the Fifth U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals threw out his conviction and let him walk as a free man, to the surprise of pretty much everybody who heard about it. There was even a judge within the Court of Appeals that denied this reversal, but he was overruled. He came home a free man in October of 1989 after six and a half years. He died on March 2nd, 1993. To be honest, I don't think Marcelo's name is all that big. I hadn't even heard of him until my friend brought up a long-lost relative of his that ran a family in New Orleans. He will, however, go down in history books as the man who most likely killed JFK. Thanks so much for watching. If you have any questions or have a request for somebody that I should cover, please reach out on Instagram or Facebook. Don't forget to hit that like, follow, subscribe, all the buttons, and have a great week. I'll see you next time. Bye!